Good afternoon. It's Friday the 29th of October 2021, just after one o'clock. Welcome to UK Column News, your host today, Mike Robinson, myself, Brian Gerrish. Well, we're at war, Mike. Are we? Yes, yeah, with the ancient enemy. With the ancient enemy, the start of another hundred years war. Well, that's what the Daily Mail would have us believe. So here's the headline. Navy ships are put on standby as George Eustace fires warning shot to Paris over hijacking of Scottish trawler and reveals Boris is set for furious COP26 showdown with Macron unless it is released as the boat skipper is summoned to court. So there's the Daily Mail making uh, a... Sorry, is it a Scottish trawler? Well, it's a very interesting thing because the name Cornelius Kurt Jan, I think, says that originally this boat was, was presumably Dutch, um, possibly Belgium, but... Um, Dutch, so second-hand trawler, which has moved around Europe and ended up back in Britain, and that probably fits the theme as we get a little bit deeper into this article. Uh, but of course, lots of hype from the mail. There's nothing really new here. There's a dispute over fishing grounds once again, and of course, this has largely been caused now by a change in rules to the new post-Brexit rules, and of course, the common fishery uh, policy uh, rules from the European Union have been dropped. But uh, let's have a look at uh, what the Minister of the Sea had to say. Uh, let's bring her on screen. Uh, this is a real title, the, the Minister of the Sea. Uh, so French lady, Annick Girardin, and she's saying one vessel was fined for re refusing to let the check take place while well, the other vessel didn't have the right to fish in the zone because it didn't have a license. Now, I read this, I have to say, with a, albeit from a long time ago, a bit of experience in fishery protection. And what she was saying made sense that uh, they'd, uh, the French uh, authorities had tried to board one of the vessels, as they're entitled to do as part of their fishery protection duties. And it appears, if she's correct, that the vessel didn't allow that to happen. That was automatically going to cause a big problem. And then the second thing is that the uh, the other vessel was apparently fishing without a license. Now, if you read into the story carefully, you'll find that there's some indication that perhaps it had a license, but that license was mysteriously withdrawn by the French, but uh, there wasn't any detail. Anyway, uh, the French minister goes on. She says the dispute is not war. That's good, Mike. It's good. not a war, but a fight. The French fishermen have some rights. An agreement has been signed. We must have this agreement implemented. We have fishing rights. We must defend them. Well, can't find too much wrong with what she's saying there. It's probably a shame that we haven't got British ministers with the same guts. France does not yet have the number of lices we expect, especially from Jersey. Retaliatory measures may be progressively implemented from next month. So this is the meat of it, that uh, essentially we've come out of uh, the European Union. Well, in theory, we have. This has resulted in new rules, which meant that the UK should be giving uh, the, fish, uh, the French fishing fleet licenses to fish in specific areas. We haven't been doing that. And obviously, there's now some tension. Let's have a listen to what the uh, British minister had to say. Well, the, the first thing is, um, as, as the UK, the way that we approach these things in the way that you, you should is we will be uh, talking to the European Commission. In fact, I spoke to the Commissioner two days ago when these 
um, these threats were first made because the European Commission has got a, a role and a responsibility to make sure its member states, including France, uh, abide by the law and abide by the terms of the agreement that was reached. We've also summoned the, the French ambassador, uh, Liz Truss, the Foreign Secretary, is going to raise these issues uh, with her and ask her to explain and, and give an account of what they uh, intend to do. We don't know what they'll do. They say they wouldn't introduce these measures until Tuesday, probably at the earliest. So we will see what they do. But obviously, if they do uh, bring these into place, well, two can play at that game. And, uh, you know, we obviously, you know, reserve the ability to be able to respond in a proportionate way. I'm sure the French ambassador is going to be frightfully afraid of Liz Truss. <laughs> uh, this is absolutely true, but um, we're going to respond in a proportionate way. That will mean lots of chat and continued betrayal of the British fishing industry. And I thought it would be just useful to remind our audience of what's actually happened to fishing in Britain. Uh, so let's have a look at, I've called it the EU's destruction of Britain's fishing industry. But in fact, the destruction was started by the traitors within the British political system. Uh, we need to go back to 1958 through to 1976, when the UK was involved in a series of what was known as the Cod Wars. Uh, and these are disputes with Iceland over historic fishing rights versus the expansion of what uh, became known as territorial control of the oceans via territorial limits and later ex uh, exclusive economic zones. These going out to 200 miles. Now, we'd got on with the... Um, the Icelandic fishermen very well, uh, going back to the to the uh, 1400s. Uh, but the the moment uh, these uh, zones started to come into the into play, suddenly everybody was getting greedy. But of course, something else was going on in the background, and that was in the 1970s. Tory Prime Minister Ted Heath utterly betrayed the British fishermen by using the UK fisheries as a major bargaining point for UK's entry to the EU common market and later the EU itself. So Iceland was particularly badly treated and her generous fishing deal offers to work with the UK were rejected. And that was done clearly to facilitate the common market negotiation. So uh, we stabbed Iceland in the back. And at this stage, Ted Heath was already stabbing British fishermen in the back because he was using their livelihoods in order to lever us into the common market. So if we had a bit of meat on the bones there, uh, the key bit is that uh, he was giving away the British uh, fishing industry. He was giving away the livelihood of the British fishing fishermen and their families by entering the common market and later the common fisheries policies. And what resulted was British fisheries being depleted by um, by the EU quotas, which steadily grew. Fishing, uh, British fishing boats were burnt and the fishing communities destroyed as EU fishing subsidies. And of course, Britain was paying money into those subsidies, funded fleets of the builds of modern fishing boats for the rest of the European countries. So basically, um, the common fishery rules were aggressively, that should be applied to British boats and less so to other nations. And then in the greed and the chaos, the fish stocks suffered from overfishing and depletion. So, of course, none of this is on the table at the moment. And if we're going to be fair to the French fishermen, they suffered from this disastrous common fisheries policy just as much as the British fishermen did. Um, so, if, so if you want to get into a little bit, bit more detail on this, have a look at British Sea Fishing 
www.ecoscience.co.uk. It gives a history of these economic zones. It talks about how the control over the waters were changed and how this started to cause trouble between the uh, various nation states. But this is the meat of their report. It says from the British perspective, the shared economic zone can be seen as a very bad deal. In 2015, EU vessels caught 683,000 tonnes of fish worth 484 billion in UK waters. Million, sorry. Sorry, 484 million in UK waters, but UK vessels only caught 111,000 tonnes worth 114 million revenue in EU member states' waters. So this is the uh, key thing that from the outset, the British fishermen uh, were utterly uh, betrayed by this system. And of course, if they're feeling a bit aggressive in 2021, uh, who's to blame them? Um, so the other thing that uh, was pointed out in this ex excellent article on British Sea Fishing website uh, was, of course, if we get into specialist fishing areas, scallops, uh, then there was a big problem where at one stage the French fishermen were trying to preserve the scallop fish stocks. And so they were not able to fish while the British fishermen were able to go over and work the grounds just outside of their areas. And of course, this caused huge friction. So uh, if we just go to this one, this is um, an article showing the structural intervention funds when the EU's money was simply being used to help destroy the British fishing fleet. Nobody wants to talk about this and the British government not doing anything to help the British fishermen today. So uh, this is the meat of it if we come up to 2021, that under the uh, terms of the Brexit trade deal, um, basically EU gets access to UK waters and uh, vice versa through a licensing system. And this is the trade and cooperation agreement. But the key point at the moment and what the French politician was getting at is, she believes that at the moment the French have been treated unfairly because they haven't been given sufficient licenses and some of the licenses have been delayed. So I'm not giving a, a completely pro-French uh, um, approach on this, but what we are saying that if we look back, the whole trouble with the fishing industry was a matter of betrayal by the Conservative British government at the time under Ted Heath. It was disastrous through the European Union and of course, since we haven't fully disengaged with the European Union uh, under Brexit, as the government claimed, we've now got further problems. But we just end the segment by uh, coming to uh, BBC Reality Check. And I think that the BBC wins the prize for, uh, well, I don't know how to describe this. Let's have a look at what they're saying. According to the Office for National Statistics, fishing was worth 437 million to the EU economy in 2019. By comparison, the financial services industry was worth 126 billion. So I'm going to label this utter stupidity of the BBC. Uh, of course, when the financial services industry collapses, uh, we're going to be a lot more interested in the fact we can eat fish. I just don't know how to describe this uh, report with the BBC, Mike, just utterly despicable. It's pretty obscene. Yeah, absolutely. Um, OK, let's uh, move on then, because, of course, uh, on Sunday, on Halloween, COP26 begins. Um, and Boris had something to say about it. Let's, um, I'm going to apologise in advance, but let's uh, listen to this. We're going to be extremely bold. 
at the COP26 summit and call for the world to make big commitments to change in four specific areas. Coal. We want the developed world to kick the coal habit entirely by 2030 and the developing world by 2040. Cars. We want the world to follow the UK lead and abandon fossil fuel internal combustion engine machines. Cash. We want the richest nations which have historically produced so much of the world's carbon to recommit to supporting the rest of the planet to go green with funds of $100 billion per year. Trees. And by 2030, we want to be planting far more trees across the world than we are losing. Because trees are among our best natural defences against climate change. We want COP26 to commit to restoring nature and habitat and to ending the massacre of the forests. These goals for this UN summit are hugely ambitious and they will require a massive effort of global diplomacy and imagination. But we must be ambitious. We must be bold. This is our best chance to make the changes now we need for the health and prosperity and growth of our economy. And the best chance to safeguard the beauty and balance of the natural world and to pass it on to our children and grandchildren. And it's not a chance we can miss. So I hope everyone is suitably motivated following that rousing uh, presentation by Boris with the stirring music in the background. I, I found it slightly ironic uh, that, that he was uh, uh, presenting the notion that the developing world needs to get rid of coal uh, by 2030 uh, and the rest of the world by 2040 uh, when Britain is just about to open a new deep coal mine uh, in uh, Cumbria. Now, why would they be doing this? Because as uh, mining technology here asks, can a new deep coal mine be reconciled with the UK's climate pledges? Well, of course it can't. Uh, but what uh, the British government is busy looking to do, and really Ian R. Crane was, uh, was uh, suggesting this very strongly while he was still alive, that uh, they are looking for um, places to store or to uh, dispose of uh, nuclear waste. Uh, and, uh, well, the suspicion was at the time that uh, the... Uh, fracking uh, mines or the fracking uh, boreholes would be used for that, but uh, perhaps that what this, what's this is about because uh, uh, it's really hard to see uh, why we would be investing in that at this particular moment uh, when we're now the, the, there was a public inquiry or an inquiry into it, which is just finished, and so we're still waiting to hear exactly what the outcome of it is. But in the meantime, that is the plan. It's, it's interesting, isn't it? The other subject that's disappeared, Mike, is the clean burn of fossil fuels, particularly coal and uh, modern coal burning system so that doesn't get that doesn't get a mention at all and no because the only country that's pursuing that kind of technology is china of course of course um we'll just remind people that of course when we closed our coal mines down uk had an estimated 300 years reserves of uh, coal fossil fuel so that's all abandoned um, but uh, in the meantime, and I'm not going to say anything much about it, but uh, the Pope uh, was giving the thought for the day on Radio 4 uh, Today program this morning. So if anybody wants to go and listen to the wise words of uh, the Pope as he describes how we need to make radical changes and uh, you know, climate response and all this kind of stuff, then, then uh, that's where you need to go to, to see it. But where does that leave us in terms of finances now? In the last couple of weeks, we've been talking about inflation quite a bit. Uh, we introduced you a couple of weeks ago to this gentleman, Hugh Pill, uh, who is uh, chief economist of the Bank of England. Uh, and he was saying, if you remember, that the magnitude and duration of the UK's inflation spike is proving greater than expected. 
uh, with still strong demand for durable and intermediate goods, but ongoing tensions in international supply chains owing to transport and production dislocations. Goods prices have risen at the global level. Much of the recent rise in UK inflation stems from developments imported uh, goods prices that uh, uh, reflect these dynamics as well as rises in international commodity prices. Uh, as the pandemic recedes and the level of co and composition of global demand and supply normalize, these inflationary pressures should subside, right? So that was his position a couple of weeks ago. And then uh, Sunday a week ago, uh, Andrew Bailey was saying this, uh, monetary policy cannot solve supply side problems, uh, but it will have to act and must do so if we see a risk, particularly to medium term inflation and medium term inflation expectations. And that's why we at the Bank of England have signaled, and this is another such signal that we will have to act. And there was a suggestion that they may be uh, uh, reducing uh, the quantitative easing or uh, and or uh, increasing interest rates in the coming uh, months and a uh, couple of years. Uh, well, it doesn't seem it's, it's just the Bank of England talking about this now because here's uh, an article in The Hill, uh, Fed faces challenges to credibility. So this article saying that the central bank, that's the Fed, has quickly moving to address a scandal involving stock trades made by its top officials. It's got two main problems here. That's one of them. The other one is that price increases are running higher and longer than many Fed officials expected, uh, boosting pressure on the bank to slam the brakes on. So that's what uh, The Hill is saying. And it's just interesting that the narrative is the same on both sides of the Atlantic once again. Uh, the Hill goes on to say, both could have deep implications for the Fed as a whole, as well as for Fed Chairman Jerome Powell's, Powell's future at the institution. Uh, the Fed is almost certain to announce next month uh, its plans to reduce the monthly purchase of Treasury and mortgage bonds, that's quantitative easing, uh, initiated in March 2020 to keep the markets flowing. Uh, announcing a sooner start uh, to interest rate hikes uh, could appease inflation hawks and soothe some concern about raising prices. So it looks like uh, that's on the cards there as well. But we'll just remind you that uh, not everybody agrees because Danny Blanchflower, sorry, David Blanchflower, who was uh, previously on the Bank of England Monetary Policy Committee, says it would be a terrible error and an absolute disaster. It could even tip the UK into recession. And of course, this is the key point. And these people understand this 100%. They understand that we've been living in this uh, hyperinflationary bubble for quite a, quite a while now as they've been printing money hand over fist. It's the only thing that's been keeping the economy going. Then the economy has had this massive hit from uh, COVID policy, government policy around coronavirus. Uh, and uh, they, I believe, intend to uh, increase interest rates uh, for a period of time at least, which is going to have a massive impact. Uh, it's going to put a lot of companies out yeah. of business and so on. Uh, but let's not forget that this is a whole economy transition because what this is really about is uh, the Green New Deal, and it's related to what's going to happen this this coming two weeks at COP26 and so on. Now, of course, uh, with uh, inflation, one of the main drivers at the moment, uh, at least in the real economy, is energy prices. Um, so I just want to uh, announce or to, to mention this event, which took place uh, 26th to 28th, so it finished yesterday. It's called Invest in Humanity. It's the Future Investment Initiative based in Saudi. Uh, and uh, well, they do all kinds of really good things uh, because it's all about being an influential community of global investors and innovators coming to talk about, uh, 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 at least have a series of high level meetings to invest in humanity. So let's uh, bring one of these uh, global investors on screen. Uh, here he is, uh, Stephen Schwartzman, who's from the Blackstone CEO. 
Uh, and he was saying, we're going to end up with a real shortage of energy. And when you have a shortage, it's just going to cost more, a lot more. And it's interesting that the uh, UK, uh, Ofgem, the UK uh, gas regulator or energy regulator has today announced that they're going to uh, review the price cap uh, on energy prices in the UK. And so that is going to unquestionably going to lead to increases, further increases next April or so. But anyway, Schwartzman said, uh, uh, and when that happens, we're going to get a very unhappy people around the world and emerging markets in particular. Um, so he was uh, warning about uh, so civil unrest, massive civil unrest as, the, 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 as a result of energy price rises. Uh, and here's Larry Fink, because you can't not have one of these events without him being there, who's the BlackRock chief executive. Uh, many structural reasons for the increase in gas and uh, electricity prices, short-term policy related to environmentalism, he's admitting. Um, so again, we're seeing that uh, this is partly being driven by uh, Green New Deal policies. Uh, and this has created energy inflation, and we're going to be living with that for some time. Um, we have these visions. We could go from a brown world and we could wake up tomorrow and there'd be a green world. Uh, that's, that's, that's all very exciting, isn't it? Well, they, they were uh, threatening businesses a little while ago that if they didn't go green, they would be out of business. If I seem to remember the UK column reports, Mike. Yeah, absolutely. And that's, that's exactly, exactly what we're living through. This is a great reset, in fact. Yeah. Uh, but uh, we can't talk about uh, gas prices uh, without beating the war drums a little bit, it seems. Uh, and so let's uh, move over to, to Bloomberg here because uh, Russia wants gas price 60% lower in Europe to keep a grip on energy. So you try and keep the prices down, which would help everybody live their lives. It doesn't help profits. It helps people live. And uh, that's that's a really bad thing. That's a very bad thing. So so uh, Bloomberg is, saying, is uh, claiming that they've spoken to two officials with knowledge of the country's energy policy. And they say that uh, Russia wants prices in Europe to be about $300 to $400 per thousand cubic meters of gas, uh, the sweet spot that would keep uh, Gazprom, uh, would help uh, keep Gazprom, uh, keep its grip on the continent's market, even as nations from the UK to Poland transition to cleaner energy sources. Uh, this stands in sharp contrast to current benchmark prices in Europe, they say, uh, which have repeatedly surged to record levels in, in recent weeks amid an energy crunch. Putin and other high-ranking officials have been using verbal interventions to cap European gas prices and mitigate their volatility. However, Russia hasn't sent any significant additional gas volumes uh, to the region's spot market. I wonder why that is. Is that got because of what Russia is doing or is it what others are doing? I think we've covered that recently as well. Sanctions against Russia. Well, ex getting a, well exactly. And, and, yeah. and here we go. Here's, here's more EU flexes antitrust muscle to counter Putin's gas gainsmanship. Uh, so the EU has launched an investigation into whether soaring energy prices can be blamed on illegal activity by any of uh, the EU's main gas suppliers. Uh, in, sorry, in, uh, sorry, the Russian bloc's uh, main gas suppliers, in particular Gazprom. Uh, US Senior Advisor for Global Energy Security, Amos Hochstein, uh, said on, a, on the 25th of October that Russia had the gas required to keep supplies flowing, but was refusing to do that in order to drive prices up. So they can't even get their narrative uh, straight in their own heads. Is Russia driving prices up? Is Russia, uh, you know... This is because it's a lie, Mike. Yes. The narrative can never be accurate because it is based on lies. And so uh, one part of this cabal catches the other part out because they're all doing different things. But the, the thing is based on a lie, and therefore the media reports cannot possibly 
make sense. They would if the truth was being told, but of course it's not the truth. That's the simple answer. It is. Um, so, uh, of course, on Wednesday's, uh, while we were doing Wednesday's news programme, uh, Rishi Sunak was giving his uh, presentation of his budget. It's sort of Tony Blair light, isn't it? I remember Tony Blair in his white shirt with the rolled up sleeves out in Iraq, I think it was. So this is this is the new man. This is the new man because yes. he was going to create a... Trust me, I'm not wearing a tie and I've got my sleeve rolled up and... Uh, even though I'm married into a billionaire's family, uh, you know, I'm doing the right thing. Yeah, but he's rolling his sleeves up and he's doing his, doing the work. Yeah, so he's yeah. creating a new post-COVID economy. So uh, I'm, just, I'm not going to spend very much time on this. Just going to run through this very quickly. Uh, forecasts from the Office for Budget Responsibility show the economy will grow by 6.5% this year, he said during his budget speech. Really? Well, of course, when you decimate the, the economy and it's basically rising from zero, then 6.5% sounds very impressive. But... It's not really. Uh, it will take until the start of 2022 for the economy to return to its pre-pandemic size. Good luck with that. Uh, the uh, Office for Budget Responsibilities estimate for long-term scarring of the economy has been revised down from 3% to 2%. I'm not quite sure how those two statements marry because if the uh, economy is getting back to its um, pre-pandemic position by January 2022, then how is there a long-term scar for the economy, but anyway, that's but, that's what he said. But the other thing is, it's a beautiful word, isn't it? That you use scarring. What you're talking about is damage. You're talking about destruction. Yes, but he has to bring in the health, the health-related uh, term, I suppose. There, yeah. uh, uh, unemployment is forecast to peak at 5.2 percent in the fourth quarter of 2021. So that's a forecast. It's a model. Uh, we'll see what actually happens. Uh, and borrowing in the current financial year will be 7.9% of GDP and will fall to 3.3% next year. And what does that mean? Well, it means that, uh, well, it means that they're going to spend another 150 <laughs> billion pounds is what it means. But it also means uh, that, that uh, oh, I've missed one because, uh, well, they were saying that uh, uh, borrowing, uh, sorry, uh, debt levels were going to fall from 96% of GDP down to 88% of GDP. So they're going to spend 150 billion pounds. Uh, but that's going to result in a fall in debt levels. That's good stuff. Uh, and there'll be grant funding for local government. We mentioned this on Wednesday's programme because this is about the devolution uh, agenda. Right. But, but, but the key bit about this money, Mike, is this is control. Central government money to local authorities means that they utterly control the local authorities and then the local authorities will simply enforce whatever the central government policy whatever that policy is that's pushed through. So this this is the slush fund to control local authorities. Yes. Centralised government. This is not decentralising. This is centralising. And the weapon is the cash to control them. Uh, of course. And uh, of course, finally, then, we're going to reduce taxes by increasing them. It's not an overt increase. It's a covert increase because he's going to freeze income tax thresholds to 2026. Don't worry about inflation. So inflation will go up. The thresholds stay the same. But that means you'll be paying less tax, um, so you can uh, you can explain that one away. Yes. Now, I, I'm just curious because we found out earlier today that the BBC was so mistrustful of this uh, report, they'd done a bit of fact checking on him. Well, I did look at that uh, BBC reality check article, and uh, really there wasn't anything in it, so I couldn't, I couldn't. So, do we trust him then? No, we don't trust him. He, he, no, no, we definitely don't do that. But. Uh, but I think that Reality Check was was not really doing any work of their own. They were basically relying on uh, other organisations to provide the, the data for them. And uh, 
Well, there wasn't really much there. No, interesting precedent though. If the BBC now feels the need to reality check the, uh... well, it does. It does imply that the BBC believes that, or assumes that the the Chancellor of the Exchequer was telling untruths in the course of his budget speech. Yeah, of course not. Couldn't possibly be. Okay, if you like what the UK column does and you would like to support us, then please head over to ukcolumn.org forward slash community and there are options to, well, join us and support us if you possibly can. Uh, and uh, do also share material from the website, but also from the various uh, platforms that we're on. And once again, thank you to everyone who's uh, got hold of a UK column hoodie. I see a couple of people in the chat box saying they're wearing theirs uh, during the programme today. So thank you very much for that. Uh, and uh, they're doing very well. We're doing our best to get those out as quickly as possible. Yeah, which is excellent. What is also excellent is that um, we, on Monday, we put out a uh, plea for people to help uh, David Noakes. Obviously, David Noakes still in prison as a result of, uh, uh, of a campaign against him by, in principle, by the MHRA over his work to try and help people with cancer. He has suffered considerably in the French prison. Now, at the time we spoke about this, um, the GoFundMe uh, platform here had got £190 for him. Uh, we asked if there were any UK column supporters who could help this situation. And I'm really delighted to say this is where we are now. So I think it's even gone up on that, 5,530 plus as a result of the generosity of uh, UK column supporters. Um, he still needs to head up towards that higher target because, of course, legal expenses are, are, legal expenses are, are a lot in yeah. any country. Um, but uh, we're very much hoping that if an appeal can go through, David could be released after, after serving approximately half of his four-year French prison sentence. And as we said, he's still going to need legal assistance because it now appears there's another layer of charges being created from Switzerland. So he's constantly facing double jeopardy. And of course, he needs help to defend it. So we're going to say thank you very much to everybody who's helped by making a donation. And we're going to continue to ask as many hands make light work. OK, well, this uh, little email came in, uh, which I thought was very interesting. Uh, it came from a former Lieutenant Commander, Royal Navy, Andrew D. Harry. Uh, there's a link through to his um, web page there. And I know that he's written a book, The Diamond Soul, so you might have a look at that. Uh, but this was about the, the um, uh, fact-checking of Facebook. And so where did this link take us? Well, it took us through to this report on health feedback, uh, which stated that the Nuremberg Code specifically addresses experimentation. COVID-19 vaccines aren't experimental and therefore don't violate the code. So I'm not sure what your reaction would be to that straight off, Mike, but of course we've shown uh, a lot of material uh, challenging this sort of thing. And uh, we got interested in health feedback and what it was. Now, if you get into it, it got a little bit confusing because it suddenly switches to science feedback, but I'm taking this as part of their website. If anybody needs to correct this, please do. But uh, the, the thrust of it is, is correct. Uh, so we've got a mission to help create an internet where users have access to scientifically sound and trustworthy information. We also provide feedback to editors and journalists about the credibility of information published by their outlets. So this is another trust us. 
Uh, we're working hard to make sure that everything is accurate and you don't need to go any further. If we've rubber stamped it, uh, then everything is okay. So uh, it then gets interesting because if you read down through, it says that Health Feedback is a member of the World Health Organization's vaccine safety net. So the World Health Organization sets the policy and Health Feedback helps to enforce that policy. That's a nice little circular system. But of course, they are entirely independent. And if we have a look at partners and funders, that's always a good place to go to. Uh, we get a greater sense of independence. Let's have a look at how this works. Uh, we've got Facebook, so that's an encouraging one. Uh, we've got TikTok. Uh, we've got UC Merced, and you'll have to look at some of these yourself because this is linked in with the University of California, but you're essentially being see something which is politically active. Uh, we've got this one, uh, Ashka. Um, again, this is uh, a particular founder who's doing global good work through a network of change leaders. So we can obviously trust that one straight off. Google's in here, the Google News Initiative. So clearly independent via that. Roland Berger, uh, Citrus, um, the Shuttleworth Foundation, another private uh, foundation as often crops up in these, and Credibility Coalition to support the assessment of the scientific credibility of 2018's most, uh, most vital health services. Uh, now, to be fair, they do list a whole raft of individual donors, uh, but essentially this organization is making the claim that COVID-19 vaccines are not experimental when clearly they are. And if I can encourage people, if you haven't watched it, have a look at the video of this French biostatistician, Christine Cotton. Uh, in part one, she is specifically showing via a very detailed analysis, and part of that is in the image that's on your screen at the moment, that it cannot possibly be true that the COVID-19 vaccines are fully tested. So she goes into great detail. She has the knowledge and the professional experience to do this. So we're going to challenge uh, what this little organization is uh, claiming. Um, <clears throat> so uh, one of the people who has been uh, speaking out on these types of issues, John O'Looney, and he's been on many uh, different interviews and so on, but this particular one uh, attracted uh, the attention of our old friends at uh, Full Fact. Um, false claims from funeral director about face masks, vaccines, and the pandemic. I'm going to leave everybody to uh, read and laugh at this uh, particular article, um, but I just wanted to highlight a couple of points out of it. Uh, first of all, midazolam. Uh, there is no evidence that midazolam was being used, says Full Fact, uh, with the intention of ending care home residents' lives or that this was a formal policy. Uh, the Department of Health and Social Care has previously told Full Fact these claims are deeply misleading. Uh, the government's top priority throughout the pandemic has always been doing everything possible to save lives. Well, I'm not sure how many lies we could detect in that. But first of all, if you were issuing a denial, Brian, would it not be a definitive denial? Because some, saying something is misleading, even saying that it's deeply misleading, is not a denial. That's saying that it's not quite right. Uh, well, exactly, because, of course, full fact is on... Uh, they're on swamp. They're not just on loose ground here because the evidence is and all the facts show that we're dealing with experimental vaccines. Okay. And uh, we're 
we're into this one where we know what was said in Parliament. Uh, right. So once well, indeed. And so once again, we have full fact not actually challenging these claims from the Department of Health, just merely regurgitating them. So, for example, when the Department of Health there says uh, that the government's top priority has always been doing everything possible to save lives. How about we actually look at the evidence, uh, if there is any, to support that statement? And I think even full fact would struggle to defend it, particularly at present when we have uh, significant excess mortality, uh, at least 50% of which is nothing to do with uh, COVID-19 or coronavirus. Um, but anyway, it goes on to, uh, they go on to say that uh, to attack uh, John Looney basically by uh, you know, associate guilt by association sort of thing because they seem to think that this will discredit them. Similar claims have been made in videos by David Eich and Kate Shemarani, which uh, we have written out, written about before. So, you know, because they've attacked other people, uh, they then link those other people to him uh, as a method of attacking him. Uh, this is uh, a bit pathetic, really. Well, this is not about full facts. This is not about the truth and evidence. This is about spinning the line in order to support government policy. And um, full fact is, is, is a master at this. We've come up against them numerous times, Mike. But um, in the uh, Hansard uh, coverage, Madazalan um, was discussed. Has the government got enough in order to ensure that thousands of elderly people had, quote, good deaths? Full fact isn't going to talk about this. It doesn't want to talk about those facts. Um, so then they go on to the issue of uh, whether these are experimental vaccines or not. And uh, uh, they say that in December 2020, the Pfizer and Oxford AstraZeneca research teams released their analysis of phase three safety and efficacy data uh, Moderna re released its analysis in February 2021. So uh, let's understand this. Again, they're not challenging this in any way. The excuse has always been, well, the vaccines were rolled out this quickly because the, the clinical trials were run in parallel. But are we really saying that a clinical phase three clinical trial, which is supposed to last several years, uh, was done in a few months uh, and that the, then the, the manufacturers issued some data analysis but it was peer reviewed, so that's okay then. We don't know who the peers were that reviewed it. Uh, well, they were independent, Mike. Of course. <laughs> independent uh, peers. So it was a peer reviewed article for, for the Pfizer one, well, at least in the New Journal, uh, sorry, New England Journal of Medicine. Let's uh, put that on screen. So there is one safety and efficacy uh, of uh, uh, BNT162B2 mRNA COVID 19 vaccine, if anybody wants to go and read it. Uh, but this is on the basis of a, a three month, four month, uh, phase three trial. Well, that's no phase three trial. And as many people have pointed out before, uh, the uh, well, this one's the AstraZeneca one, but it's the same for the others as well. Uh, this one not due to be completed until February 2023. Uh, but uh, full fact says that because it uh, it met its primary completion date of uh, March 2021, uh, that that's satisfactory. Okay, so let me understand this. AstraZeneca released their final results in December 2020, according to full fact, but the primary uh, completion date was March 2021. And then the trials completion date is February 2023. But these are not experimental vaccines. Just remind yourselves of what clinical trials are supposed to do. Um, so this is from the FDA. So phase one uh, is supposed to study a small number of participants uh, or people with the disease and condition. And that's supposed to last for several months. And then they say approximately 70% of drugs move to the next phase. Uh, so here's phase two, uh, up to several hundred people with the disease and condition, uh, several months to two years for a phase two trial. 
uh, and uh, approximately 33% of drugs move to the next phase. And for phase three, it's supposed to last one to four years, not three months. Uh, and it's supposed to take, uh, you know, thousands, hundreds or thousands of volunteers um, and uh, approximately 25 to 30 percent of drugs move to the next phase. And of course, uh, we're not even doing uh, phase four drugs uh, trials, at least not uh, formally, uh, where thousands of uh, volunteers are supposed to take part in that. And that's supposed to be looking at long term safety and efficacy. Uh, these trials uh, aren't complete. The data is not complete. There are many, many uh, papers in, in peer-reviewed journals uh, saying, why are we not getting full access to the underlying data? Uh, we're having to rely on Pfizer and AstraZeneca's uh, and Moderna's statements. Uh, and really, uh, you know, there's just nothing from uh, from full fact to offer any kind of challenge to this. Because they don't go near it. If full fact did the proper investigation, they would start out by looking at the number of elderly people who died. Uh, they'd look at the conditions under which they died. They'd look at what medication was given to those elderly people. Full fact is never going to do that because if they did it, it would re reveal the truth that tens of thousands, probably hundreds of thousands of elderly people died a good death as a result of a deliberate policy to cull them by the UK government. Full fact daren't go into this thing, so they're always going to come out, skim over the surface and try and placate people. But of course, they're welcome to pick up the phone and call us and, and get involved in a joint investigation if they want. Uh, we'd be delighted to do that. We have called um, Full Fact on numerous occasions. They're very, very nervous whenever we call them but we never get any calls from full fact. Uh, presumably they don't want to engage with the column. I wonder why that would be. Can't imagine now. Uh, online safety bill, the setup continues. So we're building a nice narrative here. At least the uh, online safety bill committee is, uh, scrutiny committee is doing that. So uh, over the last couple of days, who have they had? Well, they've had yet another Facebook whistleblower. So here she is, Frances Hogan, uh, another Facebook whistleblower. and. Just amazingly enough, yet another Facebook whistleblower comes in front of them and, and hits another uh, key point of the online safety bill. Uh, and one of the key features of the online safety bill is this idea that we have to tackle uh, content on the internet which is legal but harmful. And of course, we don't define what harmful is, uh, but it's legal nonetheless. But she said that legal but harmful content is a key part of what hurts people online. So. Where did that take us? Well, then the next day, uh, Antoine uh, Davis, who is Facebook's head of global safety, was on. And of course, the, one of the narratives that's being uh, punted around is that Facebook is really not cooperating, doesn't really want to get involved with this, doesn't really know the details of the bill. So Facebook's head of global safety, for some reason, they didn't have Nick Clegg in front of them. I'm not really clear why that is, because he's supposed to be Facebook's representative in the UK and Europe, but nonetheless, he, he didn't want to be He's there. He's just sucking up the money and the sunshine. Yes, so by. instead she came on uh, from her kitchen or something uh, remotely, and she said she didn't know the details of the bill. And so they challenged her on that. They were quite incredulous about that. Uh, and then she said, I'm actually familiar with the bill. So she doesn't know the details of the bill. I actually She's am familiar with the bill. Uh, but then she was challenged that again, and she said, I'm familiar with parts of the bill. So, so that's basically the situation that Facebook is trying to present. They're trying to claim uh, that their head of global safety is giving evidence to a parliamentary committee and doesn't know what it is that she's there to give evidence about. 
So that's what we're supposed to believe. Um, and uh, what can we say? What can we say? We just—it is a setup. It is a setup. This committee is going to uh, produce a report which absolutely underpins uh, all the main features of this bill. Uh, and unless uh, the general public gets involved in opposing it and resisting it, it is going to become law, and uh, we are going to see massive shutdown of freedom of speech on the internet. Yeah. Can people do something about it? Yes, you can by speaking about it, warning others about it and challenging your MPs. Many people say that it's pointless challenging the MPs. We disagree on this. The problem is that not enough people are challenging the MPs. And the starting point should be that the MP is going to lose their seat. They're going to be deselected de unless they pay attention to what their constituents are talking about. So it's up to all of us to make sure that the pressure is brought to bear on the MPs as well as anything else we might choose to do. Uh, well, we just emphasise the point about uh, censorship. Thank you very much to the viewer who sent this one through. Uh, from Axios, exclusive billionaires back new media firm to combat disinformation. So they're obviously getting really, uh, really desperate now that it's not enough to use the big corporations. We've got to get the billionaires going. Uh, so this is what it says, a new public benefit corporation backed by billionaires Reid Hoffman, George Soros and others is launching Tuesday to fund, to fund new media companies and efforts that tackle disinformation. Why it matters, Good Information Incorporated aims to fund and scale businesses that cut through echo chambers with fact-based information. As part of its mission, it plans to invest in local news companies. And so it goes on, lots and lots of words about how we should trust these people. Uh, it talks about the big picture, the latest example of investments by billionaires targeting disinformation. Craig Newmark, the founder of Craigslist, has invested millions. Steve Bulmer, former Microsoft CEO. So completely independent organization. And these are the billionaires that are gonna hope to um, protect us. Well, we had another message, a uh, lot more serious and not the sort that uh, is going to appear through any of those media channels. Let's just uh, follow this through. It said, hi, hun, how are you? I tried to get my dad in, doc in the doctors today, was told no appointments again. Could, could, uh, could I have a ring back next Thursday? The worrying thing is what the receptionist told me. She said that they're having a crisis at the moment and they are in, inundated with very poorly children. I wonder if it is the kiddies that have been recently jabbed. And I'll just say to people that the text there is as received, and I've left it like that because this is, this is how, how it has, has come through. Is there something in this? Well, I just want to remind people about this document, The Spars Pandemic 2025-2028 by John Hopkins University. Uh, we've talked about this before, but I encourage each and every one of the UK column viewers and listeners uh, to look at this document. You can find it very easily online as a PDF. It says it's a hypothetical scenario designed to illustrate the public health risk communication challenges that could potentially emerge during a naturally occurring infectious disease outbreak requiring development and distribution of a novel and or investigational drug vaccine therapeutics or other medical countermeasures. The infectious pathogen, medical countermeasures, characters, news media excerpts, social media posts, 
and government agent re agency responses described herein are entirely fictional. Now we challenge this whole document because if it's entirely fictional, its ability to predict the future in so many different areas is simply incredible. It's impossibly accurate. And this suggests that far from being uh, some fictional look at the future, this was something that was part of a planning system, but we leave our readers to judge. But what we're getting to is that if you get into chapter 17, talking about vaccine injury, it starts to talk about the effects on children. As time passed and more people across the United States were vaccinated, claims of adverse side effects began to emerge. Several parents claimed that their children were experiencing neurological symptoms similar to those seen amongst livestock exposed to the GMI vaccine. By May 2027, parental anxiety around this claim had intensified to the point of lawsuits. That month, a group of parents whose children developed mental retardation as a result of encephalitis in the wake of Corovax vaccination sued the federal government demanding removal of the liability shield protecting the pharmaceutical companies responsible for developing and manufacturing Corovax. So we find it fascinating that in this fictional look into the future, one of the key things that they flag up is children becoming ill. And this is, uh, uh, this is what we are now getting more and more reports about of children who've been taken ill following the vaccine. I'll just add a little bit more from SPARS, uh, the SPARS document. Uh, this is just part of a, um, a time scale from April 2027 through May and November. It starts off by talking about um, crowdsourced and independent epidemiology analysis of Corovax side effects conflicted with official federal reports. Exactly what we're seeing that people who are are professionally trained and knowledgeable are, are questioning what is what we're being told with the government, but this was all part of a just a look into a crystal ball, Mike. Uh, reports of Corovax side effects began to gain traction. Several parents of children who experienced the neuro, neurological symptoms after receiving the vaccination sued the federal government. They're very worried about people going to the courts for damages. And of course, we've seen this already discussed in UK. And here, November, initial reports of long-term side effects of the Corovax vaccine emerged. These reports arose primarily from those in the initial priority high-risk populations and were few in number. With little available data and numerous pre-existing conditions, initial studies were unable to identify a statistically significant association with any long-term effects, claims for compensation. Now we know through the MHRA yellow card statistics, and we know through the VAERS data that of course, there are millions of uh, adverse effects from these vaccinations. There are thousands of deaths, but we also know that neither the MHRA in UK or the VAERS system in America are investigating these deaths fully to establish just, the just what is the culpability of the vaccines in the problem. So uh, we followed this little trail through. Uh, uh, it ends here with saying in response to the public demand for long-term side effect compensations, the uh, Health Secretary invited Congress to conduct 
an independent investigation of the federal compensation process to alleviate concerns of impropriety. So um, there we are. It all comes down, can we buy off the victims of these uh, vaccines? And we would say, have a good look at the John Hopkins Center for Health Security. Have a good look at the CVs of these people. Uh, they include academics and people deeply embedded in the American military system. And uh, this page uh, caught my eye. I know it's very difficult to read on the screen, uh, but essentially we're looking at links through to labs in China, and we're looking to uh, links through into the military industrial complex, where it's not so much protecting people's health, it's following out uh, bio attack, bio weapon attack scenarios in the USA and uh, worldwide. And we'll end the section on this one, which was also sent through. It said, quietly, this is happening in children's hospitals. They're getting ready for stroke admissions because of mass children's vaccinations. So this is the report. Starting tomorrow, paediatric code stroke will become operational at children's hospital. The paediatric code stroke is a dedicated multidisciplinary team approach to managing pediatric patients with suspected stroke. And on it goes. So we're seeing preparations being taken in the hospital system, both in the US and UK, because they expect damage in children. Um, okay, uh, let's, uh, well, actually finish today because we're gonna have a shorter news program today, but uh, let's bring, uh, well, Facebook back on screen. And uh, here's Mark Zuckerberg. Lots of people making fun of uh, the rebranding of uh, Facebook's parent company, uh, which was called Facebook, but is now called Meta. Uh, and uh, we want literally all of your metadata, says this particular one. So what's this all about? Well, they've rebranded to Meta uh, because apparently they're worried about the, uh, the bad reputation that Facebook, the name, has been uh, uh, getting, mounting scandals, whistleblowers, leaked documents, all this kind of stuff. Um, but uh, Meta, apparently, he's chosen this name Meta because he's referring to what is called the Metaverse. Um, and this is, uh, some people saying, his vision uh, for Facebook's transition into a shared augmented reality where, us where users work and play in virtual world environments. Um, so uh, he said that he believes the Metaverse is the future of the internet and the world, and none other than the BBC has been actively promoting this. So they were promoting it in this article. They've got multiple articles on the BBC News uh, website about this, but they were also uh, promoting this on uh, on BBC Radio 4 as well over the last couple of days. Um, so apparently the next big thing, what is the metaverse? Well, what is the metaverse? It's supposed to be about virtual or augmented reality or something a bit more than that. Um, to get to grips with this, we need to have, a, well, let's just have a look at this presentation this is really what it's about. It is transhumanism. Um, so here is a presentation from Guilo Prisco, uh, and it's called uh, trans Transhumanism in the Metaverse. Now, just to give you an idea of who this person is, uh, Guilo Prisco uh, was formerly a senior manager at the European Space Agency. He's a physicist. He's a computer scientist. He served as a member on the board of directors of the World Transhumanist Association, uh, and uh, he was also a temporary executive director there. Uh, he's also a founding member of the Order of Cosmic Engineers and the Turing, the Turing Church. 
uh, which are described as fledgling organizations, which claim that the benefits of a technological singularity, uh, which could come from accelerating change, should or would be viable alternatives to the promises of major religious groups. So uh, we've definitely got the uh, one world religion coming in here as well. Uh, but let's just have a look at some of this, at what, the, what they're claiming. Um, so the metaverse provides uh, an ideal meeting space and workspace for the non-local geog geographically distributed worldwide scattered community of transhumanists. It provides an ideal training and edutainment environment for futurists and students of advanced NBIC technologies. Uh, and we can make dollars in the metaverse. And last but not least, he said in this presentation, he gave this a number of years ago, the metaverse is where we may well spend the rest of our very long lives. Um, so this is about transhumanism. It's about uh, joining the digital world in, in ways that we haven't seen before. Um, and uh, you've got to ask, why are we allowing people like this and people like Mark Zuckerberg to drive the future of humanity in the way that it is? Because they're driving us further and further away from being human. Um, so what is the metaverse anyway? Stevenson's metaverse is a high-definition 3D digital virtual world where users represented by their avatars can meet and interact just like they do in the physical world. Instead of building websites like in today's internet, metaverse developers build fully 3D virtual spaces, brackets, scapes, which can closely mimic the physical world or be, a, uh, or be as different from the real world as the imagination of the developers permits. For example, in the metaverse, you can visit an accurate replica of a real city, a future imaginary space settlement on Mars, a microscale world where you can see individual molecules and cells, etc. The term massively multiplayer online game is used more and more frequently. I still prefer metaverse because it's not always a game. And that's a key point. It's not a game. What they're pushing is not a game, although it will be computer games and online games, which uh, are, are the key drivers of this or the key uh, way that people are going to be attracted into this uh, situation. So more and more users do not consider virtual worlds as a mean to escape real life, he said, but on the contrary, be useful means to complement and enhance real life and enabling technologies to support real world social, educational and business activities. Those who have participated in voice enabled events in modern virtual world know that the feeling of being there, meeting other people and talking to them is much more pronounced than with online chat, phone, or video meetings. Okay, are you, are you feeling good about this, Brian? No, I'm not feeling good about it at all. What's in my mind, uh, Mike, is that, um, of course, very young children who are drawn into this type of stuff, their brains are not going to form normally, so they are not going to be normal children. They are going to be heavily damaged by the time they're probably nine or 10 years old. Absolutely. So uh, they went on to talk about Second Life, which of course is a virtual reality uh, game, perhaps you might call it. Um, and uh, the fact that they're, they're in Second Life, uh, they're presenting transhumanist uh, virtual uh, com conferences online inside Second Life. Presentations and meetings with IRC, Gateway and Voice Chat being there in VR can unite transhumanists separated by geography. Uh, living forever in the metaverse, the metaverse is we, where we may, may well spend the rest of our very long lives. And he starts talking about mind uploading, making a complete copy of the important information contained in the brain, storing the copy on suitable media, uploading and running the copy on a new support uh, different from the original biological brain. Uh, the devil is in the details. 
uh, what is the important information he asks and so on. Uh, and it goes on, the transhumanist ideas in OA Metaverse, which is another online game in inverted commas, a consistent realistic version of the possible post-singularity future based on speculative but plausible advanced technology, for example, germline engineering, nanotech, fem femtotech, uh, personality uploads, megascale engineering, navigable wormholes, etc., avoiding popular sci-fi cliches and incorporating cultural along with technological development. I just, I feel that this is extremely dangerous. The BBC is promoting uh, the concept of the metaverse without any critical analysis of it whatsoever. No critical analysis of the people who are pushing this policy or this agenda. Um, and uh, well, one of the uh, chief executives of one of the biggest corporations on the planet has just renamed his company Meta because this is the direction he wants to take uh, his business his world and uh, everybody that's associated with Facebook as a, either a, uh, an employee or a user. So um, really we should be asking some serious questions and uh, where uh, once again is the mainstream media? Absent without leave. Absent without leave, indeed. Uh, arrogance and ignorance are the other two things that go with that, that Mike. Uh, well, where do, what do we say to our audience? It's clear that we are heading into some very troubled times. Uh, we encourage everybody to research and check uh, the news that we've put out. And if you can help us with more facts and information around it, that would be uh, very well received. And of course, warn other people, talk about it, um, share your concerns, challenge any of the old media that you can, because there are journalists, of course, working for the BBC or even some of the uh, major newspapers who are now waking up, but they're still very scared of their own editorial teams. I think we'll leave it there. Yes. Uh, just uh, one note is that the uh, interview that uh, UK Column did with uh, John O'Looney is finished. That will be up in the next couple of days. And uh, we will say he has our full support for the evidence that he's brought forward. And uh, of course, that interview reinforces the fact he is telling the truth. Uh, uh, full fact is clearly way off target. And uh, also, I'd like to say, do have a look at that uh, part one of the French lady, Chris Cotton, part two, where she goes deeper into the VAERS system of vaccine adverse effects in America will also be up in the next couple of days. And there's lots of good information in that. And uh, just finally, somebody pointed out to us that there was another appeal for uh, financial support for David Noakes uh, from a gentleman called Scott Tips. Um, thank you for letting us know that. Uh, we know that Scott is attempting to do some good work to help David. Uh, we were asked by the family if we would also give our support, which is why the UK column is promoting that particular fundraiser, uh, but it's good to see a number of people working hard to try and help him and uh, get him out of prison. Mm. We'll leave on that positive note. Thanks for joining us. We'll be back at the same time on Monday. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.